0: is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Good afternoon. I am your host for News Talk Today this afternoon, Deb Hutton. Thanks for joining me. I will be with you from now until 2 o'clock. So earlier today on More in the Morning on News Talk 1010, I shared a story that generated quite a bit of reaction. And so I thought we'd kick off the show. We'd kick off News Talk Today talking about that same story and the the issue at hand that I shared. So Friday was a PD day for my eight-year-old. And uh, one of the things I love to do is is when you're carpooling to do something, you get to listen to the kids in the backseat and you learn so much as a parent about what's going on with them. And it's usually just fun. And what came on the radio was the story about Girl Guides of Canada changing the name of its brownies. Their seven and eight-year-old troop that I was part of My older daughter was part of, and my eight-year-old is in her second year of, and will be graduating from that program next spring. Girl Guides of Canada has made the decision to change the name of Brownies. And the girls were a bit perplexed when they heard this. And so I did my level best to explain that for some girls, the name Brownies makes them feel uncomfortable, doesn't make them feel welcome. But unfortunately, I obviously didn't do a great job because the girls started asking what Brownies had done wrong to make people feel uncomfortable, to make other girls feel uncomfortable. They're all brownies, by the way, three girls, my daughter and two of her friends. And, and both of her friends are actually South Asian, actually mixed South Asian and, and Chinese. And so they kept asking me, what, what did the organization do? So I wanted to have this conversation today. I wanted to to talk with someone who, who probably would do a better job than me. Uh, explaining the genesis of this conversation and of the change that Girl Guides of Canada to make. And then after the break, I'm going to take your calls, see where the listeners are on this particular topic. So joining me to have that conversation is Farah Khan, founder of Possibility Seeds and a member of the Government of Canada's Federal Strategy Against Gender-Based Violence Advisory Council and a former board member of Girl Guides of Canada. Farah, welcome to News Talk Today. Thank you. And I'm also a former Brownie. Oh, fantastic. I actually I saw that on on your Twitter feed. Um so, I'd, let's just start with the basics here because you were a board member, former board member. You were involved in this discussion, I believe. What was the what was the impetus for Girl Guides of Canada to decide that this was an important issue to take on?
2: Girl Guides of Canada really, you know, heard from current and former members, including myself, that the name Brownies caused them personal harm and it made them feel not welcomed, not included, not a part of guiding, which is what guiding is all about. Guiding is about welcoming every girl. And because of that, some girls decided that they didn't want to be a part of the branch because of the name. And they chose even to skip the branch altogether and delay joining Girl Guides until after that branch. And so it was a really important decision that the Girl Guides of Canada made and the board and honestly, I'm, I'm so proud of Girl Guides for making that decision to affirm that all girls are welcome and that we're going to listen to the people and the community
1: members who say, "No, we need change. So this was, it was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, was it a reactive decision or a proactive decision on, on the board? So
3: you're oh, saying-
2: I think it's, it's have... a proactive decision. Yeah. Because what it is, it's, it's listening, right? It's listening to girls' voices and taking action when they speak up. And Girl Guides of Canada has a girl first philosophy, this idea we listen to girls and we can't just listen to um, just one type of girl. We have to listen to all girls. And if some girls are saying, you know, this doesn't make me feel welcome. A name is just a name. It's how the group goes and what happens in that group.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, you you tweeted out uh, Girl Guides should be inclusive, bold and brave. And I couldn't mm-hmm. agree more. It's why I have really pushed both of my girls to be part of it. My older daughter has uh, some special needs, and she has found a very welcoming environment in, in guiding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just am curious how widespread was the, when I said proactive versus reactive, it was, were you responding, or, or were you just moving forward? And I, I think I heard you say it was, it was proactive, but based on, a, on people having brought forward some concerns. Curious just how widespread the concerns were.
2: I, I can't, like, give you numbers of people. I think that's something that the guiding organization can give you. Um, but I can say that, you know, many girls and, and mums were asking, you know, I, I think this can change. We are in a different place now. And isn't it great that girls felt safe enough to talk about that and maybe didn't feel safe to tell their group at the time or maybe their guider, but maybe felt safe to tell guiding the organization and we listened and moved forward. And I think that's really exciting. And I don't know about you, but, um, Girl Guides was a very special part of my childhood. It was a place where I felt that I could learn and grow. Um, so I think it's great to hear that they are listening to girls. And the thing is, if it's five girls or 200 girls or a thousand girls, we still have to listen to the voices of young, racialized, brown girls who are saying, this doesn't really feel good for me to be in this group with this name.
1: So, uh, as I said, I, I did obviously a lousy job trying to explain the name change to my eight-year-old and, and her two friends who who are um, uh, so South Asian and, and Chinese mixed background. I, and and so, like, what is the best thing to say to these girls? Because I will tell you, uh, as I said at the outset, my me trying to explain made the girls feel as though brownies as an organization had done something wrong to other Mm -hmm. girls Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. well i think you know a part of the guiding girl guide promise is to take action for a better world and taking action by updating this branch name is an important step in creating a space where every girl feels like they belong in girl guide so it's not going to a place of shame or blame or saying you know this is the worst thing it's saying we can move forward differently and we can move forward together, where everyone feels included. you know, and I think you know your daughter my my son um, has is cognitive disabilities, and I think about um, when he goes to certain playgrounds or he go to certain places and they're not welcoming of him, or he go I was worried about him going to daycare and thinking about what a safe place could look like for him, and being able to talk to that daycare and and see how they would affirm him and celebrate him for all that he is. We want all spaces for children to be like that. And Girl Guides making that promise is making sure that all girls feel welcome, just like your daughter, just like my son deserves to be welcome, because their disabilities shouldn't be the barrier. The disability, ableism is a barrier. And so girls of color, especially brown girls, deserve to feel safe in Girl Guides. And all girls do. And so this is just one thing that they're doing to move forward. And isn't it great that they're thinking and listening to those girls?
1: So and I think you and I can agree on all of those points where we may part company, though, is in that making the change to the name of Brownies is somehow fostering that. I mean, it, if if this were a conversation similar to the renaming of Ryerson or, or the renaming of Dundas, where Brownies was named after Joe Brown, whose history uh, was mm-hmm. inappropriate, then I understand right. intellectually that conversation. But the mm-hmm. word Brownies is actually fairies or gnomes. And and, and as as you would know, being a brownie in the past is part of the lore and part of how they generate fun Mm -hmm. and and interest in brownies. And so I'm feeling as though making the name change is a step too far for me. And in fact, in my clumsy discussion with my child, created exactly the opposite of what you and I have just agreed upon.
2: Yeah, so I believe in the commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is the heart of Girl Guides. And it calls us to listen to lived experiences of racialized girls and take action to safeguard those commitments. I don't think it goes too far to make sure that everyone's included, from children with disabilities to racialized girls to feel safe in groups. So I'm not going to debate about it, but I will say as a brown girl that was in brownies, the kind of racism that I experienced with the use of the name by girls in my troop by people that ignored and didn't listen to racism and talk about it makes me feel heard and seen in this conversation in terms of how brownies has changed. Um, and for me, I think it's really important to see, too, that the branches are special places for members and former Girl Guide members. We can all have fond memories of the activities and badges and all those things. But it's really important that we see and move forward that we don't center people that don't have lived experience to say that this is right or wrong. We listen to the people most affected and celebrate the fact that they felt safe enough to say it and celebrate the fact that all girls are welcome in Girl Guides. And we're affirming that with this name change. And that's the part that I'm excited about. Inclusivity takes work. And if we're uncomfortable about it, that's something we need to check in ourselves. It's just like when people are uncomfortable about
1: things for people with disabilities and feeling comfortable about accessibility. We always wanna make sure that people feel safe. Eric Khan, I apologize. We are going to have to go. Coming up after the break, one 623 1010 I want your feedback on this. It's Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today.
0: Staying on the story, News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back to the show. I'm your host for News Talk today, Deb Hutton. And in the last few minutes, we were discussing the fact that the Girl Guides of Canada has made a decision to change the name of its brownie unit, the unit for girls seven and eight that so many of us, myself included, and my two daughters have been part of. My youngest is actually in her second year, so is still technically a brownie. The proposal out there and there were um, uh, an opportunity for people to weigh in are either Ember's, the start of something that is going to take flame, or comments, the notion of something that is is uh, out there and, and exploratory and all of those sorts of things. Those are the two names on the table. We will find out in January what brownies will become. But the question I wanna ask you at 1-855-633-1010, do you believe that this is an important thing for Girl Guides of Canada to do, to change the name of brownies to something else, or is this a solution to a problem that doesn't actually exist for most go- girls and, in fact, may inf- create a focus for brownies that would deter some people from going? one 633 1010 What's your view on this? For me, I don't think that this is something that brownies needed to do. And as I explained earlier, I had a, a bit of a, obviously a clumsy discussion with my, my daughter and her two friends, both of whom are visible minorities uh, in the car on Friday morning about why this was happening. And as a result of that, they took it to feel like Brownies had done something wrong to other girls. one This is not because the founder of Brownies, you know, let's say his name was Joe Brown, did something offensive and inappropriate in his history. The word brownies in this troop comes from uh, fairies and gnomes and all of the, the woodland creatures in our imagination. It is specifically about that. It is a name associated to the, the little groups within brownies that our girls form when they go and start their meetings every 633 1-855-633-1010. Let's start with Andrew in Toronto. Andrew, what's your view on this?
4: Yeah, I'm I'm with you on this. Uh, Deb, this is this is a bridge too far in terms of political correctness. Um, like I say, uh, there's lots of evidence and studies out there that show that uh, basically 7% of the people on the right and 7% of the people on, on the left are pushing the discussion, and the other 85% of the people are the same people. And, you know... Context doesn't seem to matter anymore. You can talk about, you know, sports names and indigenous sports names as well under the same classification. Context does matter. Sometimes those names have to change, and they should, because they are um, insulting and racist, but other times they they shouldn't. And I think this is one of those ones where context does matter, and it's an important teachable for those kids to make them aware of the history of, of brownies and where the name originated from.
1: All right, Andrew, well said. Let's move to Steve in Niagara. Steve, what's your view on this?
4: Oh,
1: Tony, have I got Steve? Hello. Hi. Steve, go ahead. What's your thought on
5: this? Yeah, I'm with the last caller. I think it's a, a, a pretty big waste of resources. And now you've highlighted something that never had the intention of being racial or, or divisive. And now you have innocent children. Your, your kids are a great example Coming forward and saying why is this a problem? What's what's the matter here? Why is this name no longer valid? So they've effectively taken an innocent name and and tarnished it by even changing the name. So now the legacy of that name will last for many many years as being racist, and that potentially this group was racist, which it never was in the first place. So I think this lady uh, had a lot of nice, warm, cozy points, but. I think she also needs to look at maybe managing her time a little bit better moving forward on acting towards truly making a difference. And and what I do believe exists is some racism starting at a young age. Uh, This is certainly not where that fight should be taken. This is a giant waste of of her time and and, and certainly the Girl Guide's board.
1: All right, Steve, thanks so much for that. We're going to keep moving here. Rohana in Oakville, what's your view on this? Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am not
6: a white guy, and I'm a 45-year-old um, Indian woman, and I was a brownie growing up, so that was a while ago. And I love the program. I went into Girl Guides as well. Uh, my family has uh, Indian background, so we're brown. And I wanted to share my experience, why I think that this move, I mean, I know it seems like a small thing, but for those of us who were brown, and there weren't many of us who were in brownies, it was a thing, and I was told many times from my friends who were not trying to be mean or anything, but they're like, oh, wow, you're brown. You're in brownies. That's cool, you know, or, or of course, you're in brownies because you're brown, and, I mean, it's all innocent in that sense. They were actually my friends, but it always made me feel like what does me having to do with, what does me being brown have to do with me being in brownies? How come nobody else is being called this? How come nobody else is being targeted or commented at about this. How come I can't just be like everybody else getting badges and doing my community service? Why do I have to be singled out because I'm brown? And then there was another girl who was brown who was actually, who actually stopped coming because her parents overheard, who are immigrants just like my parents, overheard some of these comments and felt really uncomfortable and felt unwelcome. And that was 25, whatever, 30 years ago. And so, I totally get that nobody means to be offensive, and I totally get that it's a the, the idea of being a brownie is like a leprechaun, a gnome, like you were saying. It came from a very innocent place, but the world has changed, and you know we're renaming things that before the people who um, maybe had those ideas that way back when having to do with all kinds of things in like residential schooling or Ryerson University or these kinds of things. Back in the day, that was okay, or that was accepted, or there was a different view of those things. But we can't keep having the same names when contexts change, and demographics change, and sensitivities change. I have, I'm, I'm married to a white guy. We have, um hope it's okay that I'm, you know, keep, I'm talking still. Yeah, no, um, listen, Rihanna, I um, so, I'm so appreciate to the call. a white guy, in my, no problem, and my kids are mixed, and I still wouldn't feel necessarily comfortable with you know, my daughter being called a brownie because that's part of her identity. It shouldn't have anything to do with her identity. Going to brownie should be something that's just like everybody else. So um I just feel like times have changed, and no one's blaming anyone from the past as to why these names were created in the first place, but things change. We need to move on, and if things are becoming um not as appropriate anymore and making people feel weird or unwelcome then maybe we do need to consider making a name change because I think the names you were mentioning as um, as potentials like Ember or Comet, I mean, these are awesome, and they have nothing to do with race, and they have everything to do with positive messaging for girls and what they can do and, you know, being a spark and all that kind of stuff. Speaking of which, Sparks is also a different name, which is really great, it has nothing to do with anyone's identity. So and, and no offense to your other callers, but white guys don't know how this feels. And so I just wanted to call in and tell you a little bit about how it feels and not to make a stink of it, not to blame anybody, but let's move on. The world is changing and let's make it more inclusive. And thank you so much for letting
1: me share my views. Rohana, thank you so much for calling. A different perspective and, and coming from a place of legitimacy. Uh, I, my gut tells me it's a bridge too far, as our first caller said, but Rohana makes a compelling case. Joanne, I've got a minute. Joanne from Toronto.
6: No, my name is Leslie.
1: Oh, Leslie, Leslie, go ahead, I'm please. I'm here with you, Deborah. Thank you. Go ahead, please.
6: Um, I think the woke generation are giving, being given too much credit in changing everything. Why do they want to change the name if you feel that you are, you don't like it, you're uncomfortable? Don't do it. But you, you don't have the right to change everything around you to suit you when we've been very happy the way we are. I understand. You may feel uncomfortable. Then don't do it. Don't go, don't be a brownie, don't be a guide, don't be a Rover, don't be a ranger.
1: Okay, Leslie, thank you, thank you for that perspective. Sorry, we're having a bit of a, a technical issue this afternoon and I and I apologize because we're leaving a, a number of texts and calls on the board, but we do have to move on. I think that was a useful discussion. I'm not sure that my mind has been changed on it. I, I think that I'm good with the word brownies, but as our caller Rohana said, she herself uh, is brown and was a brownie and thinks it's time to change. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk food prices. Probably not controversial, but an important topic for us to be aware of. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeart Radio Talk Network.
0: You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Food prices, something we've all been hit with, something we all have an opinion on. And there is a new report out today, and maybe we don't even need the report to tell us what it feels like in our wallets when we go to the grocery store. But we are going to talk about it nonetheless. Uh, the Canada food price report was released today, as I said. It estimates that food prices will increase by another 5 to 7% on average next year adding hundreds of dollars to the average family's annual expenses. In fact, the prediction is that for a family of four, the total annual grocery bill is expected to be $16,000 plus, which is more than $1,000 than it was this year. This is the 13th edition of Canada's Food Price Report. And joining me to chat a little bit about it and drill down on the numbers is Samantha Taylor, who's professor at Dalhousie University's Faculty of Management and a co-author of the report. She's also an Accountant Research Associate with the Dalhousie Agri-Food Analytics Lab. Samantha, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you so much for having me, Deb. So this is kind of depressing news. Uh, We've had, what, the last couple of months here in Canada, we've seen 10% increases in inflation on food, and it is not gonna change in January.
7: Yeah, I, I agree. I really wish that we had, uh, you know, more optimistic numbers uh, and items to report uh, for 2023. However, uh, these are the facts of the matter.
1: And this is across the board, if I understand the report, all food categories?
7: So, all uh, absolutely. All food categories are expected to increase, whether it's bakery, dairy, fruits, meats seafood and veggies um, the 5 to 7% is all inclusive with some slight variance uh within each category so for example uh the least <laughs> increase uh would be to fruits uh as then followed by you know uh seafood 4 to 6% um bakery dairy and meats are at 5 to 7 and the highest uh forecasted increase is to the veggies at 6 to 8%
1: so I'm gonna ask a naive question here, but fruits are the the least of the bad, and veggies yes, are least the bad. <laughs> in, in, in my mind, those things come from a similar category in terms of prices. what's What's the differential?
7: Right. Um, so the veggies you know, it would be just in in know, the the shipping nuances uh, as well as the mix. Uh, for example, We've seen, on one hand, lettuce be at, oh gosh, uh, near all-time high. And on the other hand, we have some really stable categories within the fruit. Uh, for example, bananas. The bananas have re- remained relatively low, relatively stable. Uh, they also have, uh, they're more favorable to ship. They last longer and they're, you know, they're kind of naturally protected. So you know, within each one of these categories, while, you know, we tend to think of items like fruits and veggies, there are right. nuances, both how, where we source them from, how long it takes to get there, how we store them while they're getting there, as well as how well do they keep up um, while they're here.
1: So actual like finite type reasons for the for the differences in these in these prices based on individual products, obviously. And to that end, the those products that involve wheat, you know, we talk about Ukraine, And I would have thought those would have been higher in this scale of high increases. Mm, It's a really
7: good point. Uh, We ended up seeing an all-time high of our bakery items for actual prices in 2022. So including things like the Ukraine, the grain from Ukraine, as well as an increase to sunflower oil. Uh, So those numbers were already captured in 2022. So our forecasted increase. Uh, of five to 7% for 2023 is already an increase off of those, you know, already absorbed and relatively high prices.
1: So we got hit this year. We just won't get hit quite as bad next year. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) So how does this eventually start to see that we are going to be on uh, or when inflation starts to, we hope, subside and go back to more, a more normalized uh, level, will we see that happen in food prices, or, or are they completely different?
7: No, you are absolutely correct, and we really do have more of an optimistic outlook for the latter half of 2023. So starting about mid-year, we're expecting that the strong Canadian dollar, uh, as well as paired with the you know, the lack of appetite, if you will, for higher priced food items, so consumers choosing the lower cost items, really um, the increased purchasing power from the increased Canadian dollar and those adjustments to supply and demand will really help um, level out the forecasted food prices for the back end of 2023.
1: So help me understand that one point you made, which is the supply and demand argument, because that tells me that there's a component that that isn't just the reality of life in in where we're importing from, et cetera, but that there actually is some flexibility based on what we as consumers do.
7: Oh, absolutely. While it seems, and it really is a, a relatively uh, grim or bad news report, individual consumers do have a lot of, of really... Um, Agency that they can take. Uh, I teach cost management um, to to students, and we look at corporations, uh, and really the same principles apply to consumers. We look at the price of an item as well as the volume or amount that you use. So. While it will take excess time, and I realize that time is not a luxury, uh, that many or really most Canadians have, I say get excited about something, whether it's getting excited looking at apps for sales and loyalty discounts, uh, if it's, you know, if you're a student or a senior looking for discount days, um, or volume, you know, once you see those fruits or veggies starting to turn, pop them in the freezer or use them up that night. So really getting creative, however makes you excited.
1: I'm speaking with Samantha Taylor, who's a professor at Dalhousie University's Faculty of Management and a co-author of the report released today called Canada Food Price Report, estimating that we are going to see another five to seven percent increase on top of what we've dealt with this past year on our food prices. Um, Samantha, give us some sense of where prices are in relation to grocery stores and their profits, because of course. Uh, the text board always lights up when we talk about food prices, saying this is this is just as a result of our grocery stores being in cahoots together and keeping prices artificially high. How much credence is there to that argument? Well, the short answer is we don't
7: know. Our lab released a report last month looking at greenflation, and part of what we did was we benchmarked the past uh, the big three grocers against their past performance of the past five years, so their current performance in 2022 relative to their past experience. And what we found with the big three public Canadian grocers, so Metro, Loblaw, and Sobeys, is that all of them were having gross profits, that is, revenue less cost of revenues, the price that you pay on the shelves <laughs> minus the cost to get it to the shelves. Um, we saw that each one of them were having a better than average year relative to their own standards, while one grocer ha- is having you know, their best year from the past five years. So you know, there's definitely indicators that suggest that more investigations, uh, or you know, just better data, um, would yield better answers. But what we're left with are more questions because the information that grocers must release is really is really limited. So I think that that's why right now the Competition Bureau has launched an investigation to really look at the entire uh, food supply chain to see if there's any issues uh, with items that um, should be concerned for con- consumer protection.
1: All right, Samantha Taylor, as you said, you, you uh, have other parts to your expertise. You gave us one a good example. I Listen, I am one of these people who will, my husband says, spend you know, $3 on gas to save 50 cents. So I am with you on kind of bargain mm-hmm. shopping. But top tip you can give our listeners very quickly for getting their bill under control.
7: Shop with a list, okay. uh, look, look for the sales, um, and don't waste when possible. Um, you know, See if you can freeze something, see if you can share things with family and friends, cook big meals. There's websites where you can put in a list of items and pop out a he- like a recipe. So really getting creative and, again, leading into your excitement.
1: Samantha Taylor, I'd say thank you, but this is not a good news conversation. But nonetheless, I do appreciate you joining News Talk today. Coming up after the break, we are going to talk to Nick Nanos, who is the chief data scientist at Nanos Research, about some stuff he has had in the field on the emergency Act. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeart Talk Radio Network.
0: to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Good afternoon. I am your host for News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton. Thanks for joining me for some of your afternoon. So we wrapped up a little over a week ago, six weeks of fairly intensive uh, testimony into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act. And we have a new poll out today from Nanos Research telling us what we all think after those six weeks. Joining me to talk about the details of that is Nick Nanos, Chief Data Scientist at Nanos Research. Nick, thanks for joining me on News Talk today.
8: It's great to be with you, Deb, and all your listeners.
1: So two-thirds, give or take, of Canadians actually think the government did the right thing. Tell us about it.
8: Yeah, I think uh, I think for many Canadians, they connected the introduction of the Emergency Act with the beginning of the end of the of the Freedom Convoy protest. So you know, when we when we ask Canadians, about 48% outright support invo- invoking the Act, and another 18% somewhat support. Uh, but still, we have to remember, three in ten are not good with uh, with the use of the Emergency Act. So that's a pretty pretty sizable chunk of Canadians that were unhappy. Using the Emergency Act in order to uh, respond to the Freedom Convoy protest.
1: Well, Nick, as as you know, I love research, so I've got like a million questions here for you. <laughs> first, first and foremost, how much change was there prior to the inquiry versus after the inquiry? Any at all? My recollection is it was similar.
8: Yeah, actually, it was pretty. It was it was actually quite similar. There was no change. It kind of speaks to where we're at politically. I think for many Canadians. They've, they have, they have a view of Justin Trudeau. They either love or hate the guy. I wouldn't even use the word love. That's why don't we say like or hate the guy? Because he's been in power for, for a significant period of time. So a number of Canadians are, are fatigued. And, uh, and at the same time, you know, even for Pierre Poiliev, a lot of people have formed opinions of uh, Pierre Poiliev. Not a lot of movement. And I think this is just another issue that I think it, it didn't matter really what happened in the inquiry except perhaps if if Trudeau had made a major blunder, um, that, you know, people went in with a view on whether the Emergencies Act should have been used or not.
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually have been quite complimentary of the Prime Minister's appearance. I thought he did a tremendous job, and and I generally, you know, get turned off when I hear him speak. I'm blunt about that. But I thought he looked prepared, he was calm, he defined uh, what they considered and why, And he defined the protesters as well, the the Freedom Convoy, and what it was. And so I thought he did a great job. How do the numbers break down your 66% that are okay with the Emergencies Act, either supported or or were fine with it, uh, as it relates to parties?
8: Well, we didn't ask that question. Oh, you didn't? No, we don't. On these uh, monthly surveys that we do, it's not the weekly survey that we do on ballot questions, There's no uh, there are no partisan questions related to party preference. What we do know, however, is that uh, the support was actually lower if you happen to be between 1834. Uh, 18 to 34 years of age, it was like at around 55% support or somewhat support. And if you happen to be over 55 years of age, you were uh, much more likely to support or somewhat support. I think it was up to like 75%. And there was significant regional variations. And Deb, I know you'd know where the variation is in the prairies. Still, yeah. still 52%, but that one region and also British Columbia being the two regions that were least likely to be supportive, but still. Uh, majorities of opinion.
1: I'm speaking with Nick Nanos, who is the chief data scientist at Nanos Research, about a, a poll that they have done for the Globe and Mail on Canadians' reactions to the Emergencies Act and, and obviously on the heels of the six-week-plus inquiry. So when you make your point, Nick, about Pierre poliev and yep. there may be some uh, issues for him, some risk in this, help us understand what that means then.
8: Well, you know, I think what we've noticed in the numbers for Pierre Poiliev is that when he talks about meat and potatoes issues like the cost of living rising interest rates how canadians are struggling to pay the bills his numbers and the numbers for the conservatives go up but one thing that we have seen and that's what we saw especially in his initial kind of focus in the house of commons where he was clearly like laser beam type precision on these meat and potatoes type issues but what we've seen in the last three weeks is uh, a focus on the on the inquiry and you know and his numbers have have slid as as have the conservative numbers, and he hasn't done anything wrong right there's ne- been no mistake, no misstep or anything like that and you know what we know from research that we've done in the past on both Trudeau and Poiliev is that uh, one of the vulnerabilities that Poiliev has is that some people associate the the uh, freedom convoy with him and they don't have a positive view of that. So I think for Pierre Poiliev, his strategy has got to be, okay, this inquiry is over, thank you very much, and, uh, and for him to hopefully see the Canadians focus more on, you know, paying the bills, paying for groceries, paying the rent, and, uh, and I would expect that, you know, we could see a positive trend line if he can get back to that narrative and get, a, get the, put this behind him.
1: Well, and speaking of the protesters that many of us believe he cozied up to a little too much, even myself as a Conservative You actually have some information on what Canadians feel about these protesters, and I I find this interesting simply because we've now heard there is a a convoy, Freedom Convoy 2.0, coming at us in February.
8: Yeah, in a couple of the follow-up questions, we asked Canadians um, who left what groups left them with the worst and the best impression. Coming out of the federal inquiry, and on the on the negative side of the ledger, at the very top of the list were the trucker protesters in general at 46%. Number two was the government of Canada, and uh, the third most popular one was that they had negative impressions of everyone involved, including, you know, the police and stuff like that. So that's on the on the negative side of the ledger. On the positive side of the ledger, about 40, 40% of Canadians said that they were left with a better impression of the government of Canada. And then twenty five percent were unsure and then the truckers came third. So what it looks like is that for Canadians at least, the truckers were more likely to come out on the short end of the stick and the government, the federal the government of Canada, you know, forty percent said they'd had a positive impression, twenty three percent a negative, so a little bit of a positive trade off for the government of Canada.
1: Nick Nanos, I think you also did a companion poll that tells uh, us what Canadians think about their readiness for this February two point oh convoy.
8: Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think very many Canadians are uh, have a lot of confidence in whether we can deal with this again. And you know, I and you know, most Canadians, the default for most Canadians whenever we do polling on the government is that the polling that the government can't do things right and that it makes mistakes. And and the response to the truckers' protest whether it had to do with the police or the respective governments and stuff like that, is generally generally cited as something that's not that great. And I don't think this inquiry, based on the polling that we've seen, has given any sort of confidence that uh, if this did happen again, in the same type of scale, that would be any different. And I, maybe, that's, maybe that's the most disappointing thing out of all of this, because I think for average Canadians, it'd be like, okay, so it was a mess. What have we learned, and how are we going to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And right now, there aren't warm and fuzzy feelings about that.
1: Well, and just on that, super quickly, because I know I have about 20 seconds, it surprises me that police didn't have a more negative impression in your polling.
8: Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with, I think people saw this as a political play. Like, it was a political play for, uh, you know, for the truckers, because they're protesters. Like, the job of any protester is to get on the political agenda, and then, and I think at the same time, you know, when people saw the reaction of the of the liberal government, I think they also saw a little bit of politics on that front. So police, not too bad. I think people chalk this up as a political fiasco.
1: McManus, interesting stuff. Thanks for joining me. This is News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton. I'll see you after the break.
0: Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton, your host today for News Talk Today. And uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the situation in our pediatric hospital, specifically the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, which we all call CHEO and how they're getting through uh, the respiratory virus season, the influenza season that we have all found and I think has been referred to as a a, uh, perfect storm in terms of what is happening with our children and our children's hospital. I'll tell you, apologies for any of the technical glitches you're hearing today on the show, because I'm actually working from home this afternoon. And the reason for that is my eight-year-old is upstairs. Uh, I keep hearing movement on the floor, so she may be feeling a little bit better. Uh, but she she is home with a cold and it's it's nose no fever but I kept her home today I'm fingers crossed she can go back tomorrow but uh, she's one of the the thousands of kids in this province throughout this country who has we hope at best a cold but in many cases some form of influenza or of RSVP so to talk specifically about what is happening at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario is Dr. Dina Kulik, who is a pediatrician and founder of Kid Crew Medical. Dr. Kulik, thanks so much for joining News Talk today. You're welcome. So give us a sense overall of what we're seeing this week, and I I know these are always often a moment in time snapshots throughout the province uh, as it relates to ERs, to uh, ICU beds for our kids, and for the general influenza outbreak that we've seen. Sure, sure. So I, I work in Toronto, so
9: I, I'm not uh, I'm not super familiar with what's happening at CHEO other than what everyone's hearing in the news. But I can say for sure that viral season is definitely upon us. It has been for um, a couple of months, really, and it's quite unprecedented. There's a lot of sick children, you know, kids like yours and, and my as well, actually kids that are homesick today, uh, with normal viral illness features like runny nose and cough and sore throat and fever. Um, the The trouble though is that there's so much normal viral stuff happening, but also quite a lot of RSV, a lot of influenza A and still a lot of COVID, and in some cases, kids are getting multiple infections at once. They have RSV and COVID, influenza and RSV, and because there's just so many of these kids, some kids, unfortunately, do get very sick with RSV particularly young babies, vulnerable babies. And so as a result, hospitals are overwhelmed at the moment.
1: Yeah, And and as I said, I I mentioned CHEO simply because they are in uh, the news uh, today. They have called on the Red Cross to help them with a hospital uh, shortage uh, next week. Uh, A spokesperson for CHEO said that normally I think they have in the range of uh, 60 beds that are normally there, 41 pediatric beds, and they've been running at 60 to 70 pediatric patients for the last several weeks with another 10 or 12 in waiting rooms. So obviously our existing system will handle most uh, intake at normal times, but is really falling behind here. Is there a short-term answer to this surge? I mean, obviously Chio's chosen Red Cross. Are there other things that we can and should be doing that we haven't seen so far to help with this crisis?
9: I think there's a lot we could be doing at home in our own family. So as you mentioned, your child is homesick. Your child isn't at school sick. And the more we can keep people out of the community who are feeling unwell, that goes a long way. So my child is sick, your child is sick, they're home, they're not at school If my kids were at school, they would be wearing masks. My kids are exclusively wearing masks at school. They have been since September and actually the last three years, really. That also will help prevent the spread of respiratory viruses. So I think a big piece of it starts from home. If your child is unwell, if you're unwell, please stay home if you can. If they are feeling better, not having fever, they're well enough to go to school, please put them in a mask. If they're older than two, they can wear one and that will a long way to preventing the rest of the classroom from getting sick and having this constant round and round of
1: illness. I'm actually going to go sort of sideways on you here just briefly, but help us as parents understand when we can send our kids back, Uh, because kids can have a runny nose or a slight cough for a very long time. Should we be keeping them home at that entire duration?
9: It's a great question. It's not that predictable how many days someone is contagious for. As long as you're coughing, you have a runny nose, you have a fever, you're probably still able to dispense droplets into the air. If you're coughing, there is going to be mucus and and viral droplets heading into the air. Exactly how many days that happens for, we just don't know. Certainly viruses like COVID, influenza, they're probably still contagious at the week or two mark, so they might be feeling well enough to go back. And you might want to send them back. And of course, you know, many parents are working and they, they need kids to be in school. But that's why masks could be really helpful. So if a child is done well, you know, that's my strategy. Put my kids in masks. That helps prevent them from getting sick, though not foolproof, but certainly can help prevent the spread of their virus to their friends and their teachers and administrators and everyone else that works in the school.
1: Speaking with Dr. Dina Kulik, who is the pediatrician and founder of Kid Crew Medical about what has been for several weeks now and continues to be an issue in our pediatric uh, units, in particular, our ICU beds at well over 100% capacity. As someone who works in the system, Dr. Kulik, is it your view that we need to uh, overall increase our pediatric ICU beds, which is obviously not a short-term fix, but that we actually will continue to see, uh, I'll call it oversubscription of the beds, or is this truly, as I referenced earlier, sort of a perfect storm of of ongoing COVID, of a particularly uh, violent influenza season and RSV?
9: I think it is more the latter. I think we have a lot more viral illnesses in the community at the moment. I think we're all back in person as well without masks, which you know sets us up for that as well. The issue isn't always just about number of beds. That's a bit of a misnomer. Oftentimes there's enough physical beds, but... Uh, there may not be enough nurses or phlebotomists or porters or doctors. And, of course, if if your kids are sick, my kids are sick, many other healthcare care providers' kids are sick or they are sick. So they are off work. So it's not simply a matter of space, which a lot of people think it is, or beds, physical beds or rooms, but rather having enough health care providers to care for these individuals as well. So if we have that much virus in the community, a certain number of health care providers are also going to get sick or their families will be taking them out of the equation, leaving less availability of those healthcare providers to care for people in hospital.
1: Yeah, it's an important point and thank you for raising it because we we do think beds and we think, okay, there's not a physical spot for my kid when in fact it is the overall care. Are you comfortable with uh, some of the the decisions as, as, as a healthcare provider that hospitals have taken? So for example, bringing in the Red Cross, we've just discussed, which is the news today out of the children's hospital in Eastern Ontario In the past, we've seen other uh, pediatric hospitals throughout the province here in Ontario who are uh, taking their teenage patients and transferring them or recommending that they go to other ICU hospitals for, you know, in quotations, adult hospitals for care. Uh, Do you have thoughts on whether this is actually the right approach to give some flexibility in our system?
9: It goes both ways. During the height of COVID, uh, many hospitals, many Kids' ICU beds were taken up by adult patients because they had run out of adult facilities for these individuals. So, where we can, we like to help our colleagues out in other, in other areas. One of the reasons why the Red Cross is being called in isn't so much just about how many people are sick, but because they're having to take other healthcare providers from other disciplines in the hospital and have those individuals help in the ICUs to care for these sick children. So if we're depleting resources in one area, that means other things will fall behind. Perhaps surgeries will get bumped. Perhaps other kids that are going for other therapies will have to wait. Perhaps clinic appointments will be moved. So bringing in these additional people from the Red Cross will help minimize how much disruption there is to other areas of the hospital that are being derailed right now because of the crisis in the ICU. So it's a matter of resource allocation. Certainly, we can use a lot more doctors, a lot more nurses, a lot more other healthcare providers in the system, and when people are sick, it takes them out of work.
1: Dr. Dina Kulik, we thank you for your time, pediatrician and founder of Kid Crew Medical, talking about the uh, crisis in our pediatric unions. I want to take your calls on this coming up after the break, one 855 1010 one 6331010 Are you satisfied that we're showing flexibility in the system and this is how the system should be working or are our hospitals in and our healthcare system in an absolute crisis I'm Deb Hutton you're listening to News Talk today
0: Staying on the story News Talk today continues on the iHeart Radio Talk Network
1: Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. Tony, I think I've got some feedback that is not going to help our listeners on the uh, Zoom call. Uh, And I say this because I did share a few minutes ago, I am actually broadcasting from my basement because my eight-year-old is uh, home with a respiratory illness, whether it's a mild cold or it is something more serious. She seems to be doing okay. I can hear lots of movement upstairs. But it's a situation that so many of us are in, including our healthcare professionals, our nurses, our doctors. They may have kids at home who are not well. One eight five five six three three ten ten. I want to take your calls on how you feel about this. Is this a failure of our healthcare system, or is this simply a perfect storm, as it's been called over the last number of weeks, where we have uh, still the the final, we hope, final legs of COVID, where we have a particularly uh, high number of folks with influenza, particularly children. And where we have some of this illness turning into RSV, RSV, one 633 1010 Give me your, uh, give me a call and let me know how you feel about this. We certainly here in the city of Toronto, and I know this is an issue throughout the, the entire country, but here in Toronto, SickKids, a number of weeks ago, our main children's hospital in the city, uh, started to divert patients to other what so-called adult hospitals. There has been a reduction in the number of elective surgeries. And now we have CHEO, Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, up in Ottawa, saying that they are bringing in the Red Cross to help with this. Are you comfortable with this, or is this a complete failure of our system? Chio in particular, 41 pediatric beds is their norm. They've been running at 60 to 7 for the last several weeks with another 10 to 12 children waiting in emergency. one 633 Let's go to Ron in Guelph. Ron, are you there?
10: there? This has failed for 20 years. We 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 are number one in administrators per 100,000 in the G20. We have 10 times as many as they do in Europe. Get rid of the administrators, put people on the floors. So that's what we need.
1: And what does that look like, Ron?
10: What does it look like, getting rid of the administrators?
1: Yeah, like how, so you're saying, like, they don't do anything, we don't need them?
10: We have 10 times as many as they do in Europe, and they run the system just fine. So. That means to me that we have way too much, and we could be spending that money elsewhere for patients, for people, for nurses, for doctors.
1: So at the end of it, it still is, it's more money. What we have currently today for you is is not adequate. We need to put more it's into the front line, less on administrators.
10: Yeah, but it's wasted money. It's It's money that we don't need to spend, and we could spend that money in places that we need it. I mean... If you look at every metric in the G20, we are, we're at number 18 or less, except for administrators where we're number one. That That's telling right there.
1: All right. Let's go. Thanks for the call, Rod. Let's go to Sonny in Richmond Hill. Sonny, what's your view on this?
11: Yeah, hi. the gentleman just now, he, he is, he is wrong and he's right in a certain way because this is a self-destructive situation that is, actually doing what the gentleman wants. By destroying the Lint system, and uh, removing those administrators that oversaw the health care in each region of our province, the government purposely, in my opinion, tried to destroy the system so that the system, to prove their point that the system is broken. But the system was not broken if the administration was put into place in the the proper way. And that's the problem that we have. Because if you look at it prior to the pandemic, we had the lint system. Our system wasn't flawless, but it was manageable. It was uh, to a great degree, it was organized. Why subsequent to the pandemic do we have a broken system to the extent that it is now? That is a question we have to ask. Why did the government destroy the LIN system?
1: The LIN system, specifically, which is now, used to be CCACs, now is, I think, called something else. All right, thanks for the call, Sunny. one What is your take on it? Is, is this just uh, a, a perfect storm and our hospitals are actually showing the flexibility with the system at large, that they should be showing, or is this further evidence of a complete failure in our health care system? Let's go to Bruno in Hamilton. Bruno, what's your take on this?
4: Hello. Well, I don't think it's a failure of the medical uh, system at all. The unions are very good at spreading the propaganda and making a, a mountain out of a molehill. And most people uh, in this generation are snowflakes. So as soon as they feel anything, they have to rush to the emergency or the doctors. You know what? You got a flu, you got a cold, it'll be fine in five days. Stop bringing your kids and stop bringing yourselves to emergency for simple things like a flu and a cold. We've survived that for thousands of years. We certainly don't need to be running to the hospital and backing up emergency rooms for colds and flus and minor ailments that the human body can take care of on its own.
1: All right, Thank Bruno. You. Thanks for that. That's uh, I, I would say Bruno would say we can actually adjust the system and make it better. I, I take that away from him, and, and cert, to a certain extent, the callers who talk about administration system isn't broken, but it sure needs some uh, some tweaks. Let's go to Man in Scarborough. Tony, if you got Man in Scarborough, go ahead, Man.
10: Hi there. I have two small kids, and they were sick for over a month and a half. And the reason was that they were giving better, they sent them back to school, they was another child sick. So that's how they got, you know, keep going and get sick and, you know, get better, sick, better. So they were last almost a month and a half being sick. Um, our health care system is broken totally. This is actually come back to our politicians. That's Ford. The ones who voted for him, they should go and ask him questions. I didn't vote for him, but the ones who did, what, what is it? If this is how he runs the country, then this is the wrong way. We're we're failing. We are not a total, total country that you know that there's no hospital, there's no doctor, there's no medication. Why are we waiting so badly for months to get medication with nothing left in the market? Oh yeah, let's get some from Australia. Why not? They doing that have time? plan. You we know that. Sick children will always be there. It's not fucking healing. It's what all right,
1: it man. Thanks. This point that no thanks for the call I'm gonna I'm gonna move on Nick in Montreal what's your take on this Nick is this just something we should expect in the system when we have a uh, a perfect storm as we are seeing this fall or is there something really wrong with the system
4: There's something absolutely wrong. The earlier caller mentioned Europe I have family in Europe um, the health care in Europe in Italy in France is far superior to Canada What we have here is we've been fed a narrative that if you throw money at the problem, we can fix it. Every election, every few years they throw so much money at it, nothing gets fixed. You look, go back decades, constantly throwing money at a broken um, system. It's broken, and this pandemic has exposed how broken and miserable it
10: is. We live
4: in one of the greatest countries in the world and our, 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 our roads, our schools, our, our health care system is all about throwing money at it. Throwing money at problems does not fix the problems. But we've been fed that miserable lie. I'm sorry, but that's what it is.
1: All right, Nick, thanks for that perspective. Let's go to Paul at Bilton. Paul, I got about 30 seconds. System broken or yeah, but- is this the way it should be?
10: Oh, no,
5: it's broken, broken a long time. couple of callers ago, they said, get rid of the administration. Agree. Uh, a little hospital up in Sudbury.
10: Fifteen vice presidents. That's ridiculous. Plus, an assistant for each one? Come on. Right?
1: So, Paul, let me ask All you, because I actually... I actually consider uh, yeah. that perspective uh, like a, a tweak, and I don't mean a minor tweak. But but that means our system at its core is in good shape. We need to change some things about it, but this isn't. We're not talking that it is completely broken. It is simply making some changes. Would you agree with that, or do you think this is a major overhaul time?
10: Uh, it's a major overhaul
5: time. You know, right. uh, I, I've had I've had my mother going into a hospital with a, with a heart attack. And she gets to sit out in the waiting room.
1: All right, Paul. Sorry, I'm going to have to go. We. I'm so sorry on that note. This is Deb Hutton. You're listening to the iHeart Radio Network. It's News Talk today.
0: News Talk today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Deb Hutton uh, with you until 2 o'clock this afternoon. So there was an article that caught our attention when we were looking at topics uh, last week and and just everything that's been happening, we're now getting around to talk about it today. Uh, There's a tattoo removal studio in London, UK, called NAMA, that has announced back in November that it would be offering the free removal, they announced this on an Instagram post, of tattoos featuring Kanye West. This initiative has garnered global interest. They've gotten a great response, says their CEO, Bryony Garbett. And Bryony joins us this afternoon to talk about this. Welcome to News Talk today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Deb. Well, and thanks for doing this, because it's definitely later in the evening over there. <laughs> so, so tell us, first of all, what it is you're offering, and then I'm going to ask you why. Yeah, sure.
3: Um, So we're a tattoo removal studio, Um, so we're offering anyone with a Kanye West tattoo that that wants that removed and and wants to remove kind of that affiliation and association um, with him. We're offering that for free. It's an extension of a a program we already had called Second Chances, where we remove particularly triggering or or tricky tattoos um, for people.
1: And obviously, uh, the reason that Kanye is is on that list of triggering tattoos is his recent tirades uh, in particular about Hitler and and some very anti-Semitic uh, comments that he's made in the last number of weeks. So tell us about the overall program and what led you to to offer removal for for tattoos that have now become, as you say, triggering.
3: Yeah, sure. So obviously we're always following kind of topics. Um, in social media that are trending around tattoos and, and tattoo regret. Um, and we saw this trending on Twitter probably now a, a couple of weeks ago, um, people asking for help to to remove their Kanye West tattoos, as you say, because of all the things he's been saying, you know, it's incredibly difficult for people to have an idol that they admire making the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Um, so we saw people, you know, reaching out for help and we we were able to to reach back and, and support them in, in their journey to remove the tattoos. And I don't think we could have envisaged it would have been picked up in, in, in the way it has, and we've had such an unprecedented um, response to it. And
1: phenomenal. when did you begin the overall Second Chances uh, removal program? So we started Second
3: Chances earlier on in the year, um, and that's focused you know, on, the, on quite hard-hitting um, topics around you know, gang tattoos, hate tattoos, and tattoos from times of, of abuse or abusive relationships, mental health, um, particularly triggering tattoos from a mental health perspective. Um, and we, we, we make sure that we always have capacity for clients on our second chances program, the many of whom come through our charity partners. Um, so this was kind of a, an extension on that um, with the Kanye West tattoos. <laughs>
1: and so the value to someone of having a free removal is 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 roughly what um so removal you know can can range
3: um, can vary according to the size of the tattoo but you know you're you're talking about 2000 to 3000 pounds
1: so five to six thousand dollars in in Canadian yeah. dollars. Um, I'm I'm chatting with uh, the CEO Bryony Garbutt of uh, an organization called NAMA, which removes. It's actually a, a company which removes tattoos and is offering through their Second Chances program, uh, tattoo removal free for those who have tattoos that they find triggering. The most recent example of this being Kanye West. Just while we're chatting, Bryony, I am going to say to our listeners, uh, if you've got a tattoo that is of this nature. Obviously, you're unlikely to fly to the UK to have it removed, but I'd like to hear from you. 1-855-633-1010. 1-855-633-1010. One eight five five six three three ten ten. Give me a call and let me know what tattoo you have that you regretted. And this isn't just—you're not talking about people who say, "Yeah, I don't even like that anymore," or "It doesn't look good now that I've aged or gained weight." You're talking about things that that people made very, very bad decisions about, and have either changed their lives or the the tattoo itself has changed in meaning—not just for an individual, but for society at large.
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's exactly that. One eight five five
1: six three three ten ten. So, give me a sense of uh, have you had someone yet with a Kanye West uh, tattoo oh, had, that has yeah, asked we've had for several removal? People. Yeah, really? we've, had,
3: we've had you know several people prior to um, the more recent tirade last week. We'd already um, had several people through the door, and I have to say, you know, towards the end of last week, that that really picked up. And it's it's not just the Kanye West portraits, you know. It's, the dropout bear or, um, you know, album covers and um, all sorts of things that, you know, relate to him. He's, he's had such an influence in many, many, so many elements of culture, you know, fashion, music, et cetera, That you know, that there's, there's a lot of different um, symbols and, and, and tattoos that are symbolic um, of that affiliation.
1: And what do people say to you when they come in? Is it strictly embarrassment or does it go deeper than that?
3: Um, I think that you know we had a client in um, earlier today actually who was saying they were worried it would affect their job prospects if they felt that having that tattoo um, reflected you know their own values um, and and that anyone felt that they were um, you know in 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 the same in the same bracket in terms of values and um, held the same beliefs as as Kanye. Um, so you know people are concerned about what it says about them and you know it's 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 a personal choice. It seemed like a great idea at the time, as so many things do. And, you know, I think, you know, we're we're very much focusing about empowerment and confidence of removal rather than any regret or or shame um, of getting the tattoo in the first place. But you can never predict the future. You know, I don't think anyone, any of his fans knew um, that, you know, the topics that he would be talking about and the way that he'd be um, talking about the beliefs that he holds. So, um, you know, it's it's a real range of people that were getting through the studio.
1: And you do strictly removal or do you actually do tattoos as well?
3: No, strictly removal, strictly removal. We've got a number of tattoo partners that we work very closely with, but uh, we're strictly removal.
1: And so when you started Second Chances earlier this year, how many folks do you think you've you've seen go through the program, including those that you've just chatted about uh, as recently as today, who want to remove a, a Kanye tattoo? Oof. Um, we've had... We've had, dozens,
3: a, yeah, we've had quite a Yeah, I mean, it's, it's dozens at the moment and we've got a wait list, um, which would expand into the hundreds. So, um, you know, it's quite, um, it's quite a powerful program that, that, that we're offering. Um, and we've, as I said, we've got a number of charity partners that we work with. So we do get quite a bit of input into that program.
1: Can you uh, perhaps think and and share with our listeners uh, one of the sort of the worst examples of of someone who was traumatized more recently by their their tattoo?
3: Yeah, um, we've got an amazing client um, called Jamie, who actually in a period of very deep depression tattooed on his own face. Um, He tattooed uh, using a mirror. They should have shot me when I was born on his face. And so incredibly, incredibly hard hitting um and he was you know he came to us via one of our charity partners um as you know he's going through a kind of rehabilitation program and we removed that tattoo um completely which is a huge you know huge relief for him he's saying you know we've given him a second chance at life he's really got his life back his confidence back and you see that he comes into the studio a new man you know he's He's walking with confidence. Uh, He's got, he got a new new haircut, new outfit for his, his latest shoot that he came in for. Um, you know, and it's, we're in an incredibly um, advantageous position to be able to give people that second chance and that that change when it can affect people so deeply.
1: That is truly amazing. Just one last question, uh, Brian Garbutt of Nama, who is a tattoo removal f- firm in London, uh, UK. How long does it take, roughly? <laughs>
3: um so you know it takes a series of, of sessions um so anywhere between kind of eight to 12 sessions and we've got our own technology here at nama so we're in a very um, fortunate position that we can treat every two to three weeks versus the traditional technologies which can take you know months between sessions so we, we can remove in months rather than years um but it's it is still a commitment you know several several sessions to remove tattoos for this
1: Bryony e. Garbett, thank you so much for your time. Uh, fascinating topic. And congratulations to you on, on taking on this initiative to give people a second thank chance. You. Coming thank up you so after much. the break, I want to take your calls. Uh, sorry, 1-855-633-1010. one 855 Housecoat or robe? What do you call that thing you put on in the morning? We're going to lighten things up.
0: It's news talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. We we uh, I'm going to take your calls. 1-855-633-1010. House coat versus robe. We're lightening things up for the last few minutes of the show. Do you know what a house coat is? Do you know what a robe is? Are the two interchangeable in your house? And I'll, and I'll read a text uh, that triggered this discussion and I don't mean triggered in the way we were just talking about tattoos triggering. But on that topic, I did want to read a, uh, a text from one of our listeners. I was a big fan of the southern band Pantera. They used the Confederate flag on albums, guitars, etc. when I was much younger. I didn't understand the history of the symbol. I had it attached on my arm as a tribute to the band and the music I loved. Now, later in life, I completely understand that the flag represents a particular shameful and hateful period in time rather than a geographical location in the United States. Big, big regret. So there's an individual who would have benefited from the program we were just talking about in the UK, which removes tattoos free of charge in conjunction with some uh, charitable partners for folks who are looking for a second chance and for whom their tattoos have become really, really, really. Really problematic for them, and they feel either shame or embarrassment, or in most cases, obviously regret. But as I said, we're going to lighten things up. 1-855-633-1010. I saw a, a tweet this morning from from uh, last evening it says, "Please help me settle a friendly spousal debate." Have you ever heard of the term housecoat for a robe? Thanks. Also, what term do you use and where are you from? So this individual obviously is of the view that the term housecoat comes from particular regions, in this case of the United States, but particular regions, uh, depending on where you grew up, what term you use. one Do you use the term housecoat? So I do. I will say to my kids, put your house coat on, or if you're cold, go get your house coat. Here's your house coat after your bath, your shower. I don't use the term robe. I certainly know what it is, but it's not a term I use. Are these interchangeable? Does it matter? Do you you use only one or the other? There was a cute story in response to this uh, tweet uh, that said their little six-year-old girl had been invited to a sleepover at the neighbor's, and they were told to bring their PJs and their house coats. And the little girl was so upset because she said, mommy, I don't have a house coat. And her mom said, it's your robe. And she said, no, 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 I need a house coat. And the mom said, it's your robe. 1-855-633-1010. Is this something that is unique to where you grew up? I grew up in the town of Listowel, uh, about 40 minutes uh, west of Kitchener very rural area. And we just always used house coat. And therefore in our house, my girls have a house coat, not a robe. I I think they know what a robe is, but certainly that's the term we use. We've also had a a text already coming in is saying, what about a dressing gown? The English use the term dressing gown. I'll tell you not something I ever used in, in my language, (laughs) a house coat you wear with clothing under it. Like PJ, strictly for comfort purposes, or as I said earlier, probably because you're cold, you're wearing the wrong pajamas or the house is cold. A robe you wear after the shower or bath, and it acts as an additional towel to help dry the body. Well, that would mean I would need two things, and I don't. I have a single house coat that goes on after a bath and that I might put on over pajamas if I was cold. One eight five we are lightening things up. I want to hear from you. Let's go, Tony, to Deborah in London. Do you use a particular term, Deborah? Go ahead, Deborah.
6: House coat is for women, and robe is for men. That's the oh, way wow! You're very
1: specific. Up. Yes, very specific. And and like, do does a house coat look particularly different than a male robe?
6: Uh, well, yes and no. Because okay. the, ro- the male robes, um, yeah, they they wrap around you just the same as the women's, but uh, different style, you know what okay. I
1: mean. Okay. Uh, okay. I know what you mean, Deborah. Bill in uh, Toronto, House coat or robe, are they the same thing? Go ahead, Bill. Bill in
9: Toronto,
1: robe. I think you got your radio on, Bill. Do you want to turn it down?
5: I call it a robe.
1: Okay. Any reason why? No. Okay. Thanks for the call, Bill. Uh, Tony, let's go to Jackie in Toronto. Jackie, what do you call the thing you put on either after a bath or over your jammies when you're cold? A dressing gown. Oh, you do? Now, are you British?
3: Yes. I think that's probably what most British people call it. Oh, now I can
1: hear the accent. Yeah, and but but does it look like what I would call the house coat? Just a you know wrap around, or is it different?
3: It, well, it'd be like a wrap around, but it would have a belt. Yeah.
1: Okay. And because there is yeah. there was something uh, I I seem to recall in the probably seventies, maybe sixties and seventies, what which was like a, a a house dress of sorts that it was like a cotton buttoned up sort of thing that women oh, would wear no.
3: these are more likely to be a plaid or a thicker um, kind of material and they would be wrap wrap around and then tied with a you know a loose uh,
1: cord yeah, just a belt tie yep Yes. Yeah. all right yeah definitely. jackie okay th- thanks Thank for you. that we're having some fun uh my wife is jamaican and would use the term duster Another house coat robe, dressing gown, duster. We've got them all going on. Uh, Sweden, we call it a morning coat. Now that is a very different meaning to me. Uh, let's go to Francine in Ottawa. Francine, is it all semantics? What do you call it? I call it a robe and okay. I'm French, and the reason
3: I call it robe, but um, is mainly in French, it's robe de chambre. And right. if you know what the robe de chambre is, it's it's basically robe of the bedroom.
1: <laughs> so isn't that the same as bedroom dress?
3: Robe uh, well, it would in be. be French? Uh, yes, it is exactly. Okay. Yeah, and All so right. I've always called it robe. I think a housecoat is more thinner. I look at it that way as well. Whereas, so you a see robe a difference. Thicker.
1: All right, so two different things for some people. My house coat is what I think everybody is defining as a robe. It's just the term I use in my household. Let's go to Diane in Thornhill. Diane, can you settle this? House coat, robe, same thing, very different. What's your take? Um, I grew up with dressing gown, but I've always said house coat, but it
6: made
3: me think I grew up with Chesterfield, but I say sofa.
1: Well, and interestingly, one of the texts that responded—sorry, uh, one of the tweets that responded to this in, initial uh, tweet itself—said that they actually called the sofa a davenport. Oh yeah, I've heard that too. <laughs> all right, Diane from Thornhill, thank you so much for your call. Great. Having some fun figuring out whether it's all just semantics, whether there's a difference. What have we got now? Housecoat, robe. Uh, dressing gown, you name it. Uh, for me, it's all the same thing. It's warm and it's fluffy and it's the kind of thing you need on a day like today. I want to thank all of our guests, our callers. I want to thank Chris and Samantha in Ottawa and Tony in Toronto for their help. I apologize for some of our technical glitches. Uh, hopefully I will be back in studio tomorrow. My child will be back at school and feeling much, much better better. I look forward to chatting with you tomorrow from noon to two. You've been listening to Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today on the iHeart Talk Radio Network. Have a good evening.